From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy, personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, Michael W. Twitty. Michael is an African-American Jewish writer, culinary historian, and educator. He is the author of The Cooking Gene, which won a James Beard Award for Best Writing and Book of the Year in 2018. His new book, Kosher Soul, will be released in August of 2022. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? I am good. So happy to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Congratulations on Kosher Soul. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Kosher Soul is a follow-up to The Cooking Gene, and I wanted to explore different parts of my identity as African-American, as Jewish, as queer. So these three books in a series, I don't know the third one's going to be called yet, so (laughs) who knows? But Kosher Soul is about my faith and food journey within Jewish peoplehood. For me, it was about telling little bits of my story, other people's story who are also African-American and Jewish, questions about what makes them Jewish, what makes us Jewish, how we make food, how does that make us? So a kind of a co-evolved situation between us and how we eat, how we are hospitable to others, all of that in one balagan. So Kosher Soul for me is this little bit of a journey for readers of all backgrounds into the Jewish part of me on a deeper level. I can't wait. It's already in my queue to get as soon as I possibly can. In the spirit of Schmalti, we're so fortunate to have you read a chapter from your upcoming book, Kosher Soul. What even are these things? Nothing is as awkward as the moment you find out someone is not your ally, your acquaintance, or even your friend. The moment when you discover real distrust and antipathy. It gets worse when it's your culture, your identity, and your place that are on trial. You question all of who you are. It isn't any fun to commit to being a native and being treated like an alien. One of my first big catering gigs was for someone I can no longer call a friend. Although our separation was not based solely on the incident I talk about here, but it definitely left an impression. He was a young rabbi, and for the small community he served, he asked me to make a meal at his home for about 75 people based on my kosher soul style of cooking. I agreed for a fee that I would later laugh at, but I took the job because we had a friendly understanding. His wife was understandably nervous about a stranger in her tightly kept kosher kitchen and had her misgivings. But by the minute, I got more and more of a feeling that it was less my method of cooking than its material that turned her off. The final straw for the Yankee wife of the Southern rabbi was collard greens. Collard greens. Brassica oleracea. Collard greens are on my African-American Seder plate, which I use the last two days of Passover as a symbolic piece. Collards are the maror, the bitter greens, representing the bitterness of American chattel slavery. True to the season of Passover, spring collards are increasing in bitterness, while winter collards mellow and sweeten. They were once endemic in the gardens of enslaved African Americans, a replacement for the many leafy greens our ancestors ate in West and Central Africa. My ex-friend's wife stumbled into the apartment, stressed and angry. Her husband had put her on the spot, asking her to go shopping for the unfamiliar ingredients while he minded their baby girl. She left with my esoteric list of soul food products, 
destined for that evening Shabbat Oneg, catered by me. Collard green kreplach was the dish. Kreplach, Judaism's opposite side of the Silk Road's relationship to wontons, are traditionally stuffed with bits and pieces of this and that, leftover meat from soup or brisket, bits of veggies. She did not look at her husband. All the rage was centered on me. What even are these things? I was hoping that it was fake rage meant to be a joke. Collard greens, I said, trying to deflect with a smile. They're good for you. My grandmother and mother and I used to make them all the time. You'll love them. I'm not touching them. How can these things even be kosher? She raged. Probably full of bugs. Whatever they are, they're gritty and dirty, and I got it all over me, and now they're in my house and my kitchen. Hope you're prepared to clean up after yourself, because I can't deal with this. Grocery bags went to the kitchen. Q slams. Muffled voices behind a bedroom door. Not an argument, but disagreement, and a series of hushings. I felt humiliated. In truth, my mother and grandmother were just about as good as any other meshkiach in ensuring the college were clean. We would examine each leaf up to five times, washing and rewashing, even using a drop of mild detergent in the second rinse to clear out any remaining bugs or dirt before rinsing another two times till the water remained clear. We looked at every hole at the stalks and the bottom of the big bowl for grit, like miners looking for gold. The greens were rolled and cut into ribbons and rinsed again. Only when the matriarch pronounced them clean did they go into a rolling, bowling pot of broth-driven pot liquor, seasoned with smoked turkey and onion, seasoned salt, and red pepper. My fervent fantasy was to have a life of constant black, white, Jewish moments of mutual understanding. We would all sit side by side, learning about each other's families, and I would teach them everything I knew about collards and learn their grandmother's favorite recipe for name that dish. This moment was when I learned to let that go. This was not a Hallmark movie or an after-school special. I was in the wrong place, apparently doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. My ego could not let me break Shabbat. My mind immediately went to the dark place of the lives of so many black women and a good number of black men who worked as domestics and cooks for white people. That was also a history being enacted here in a very different way. I had no excuses to frown. Thousands of others had survived tens of thousands of moments like this microaggression. Assumptions of inadequacy, suspicions of contamination. Looking back on it, it was a good reminder that I was not special and that history had more to teach me than anecdotes. This was a lesson in survival of the spirit. I worked my way through the methodical ritual of cleaning the greens and every few minutes, I felt the rabbi's wife's head over my shoulder from the door, throwing scowls. They had lived in Asia, traveled widely, seen actual trafe and temptations, but it was my greens that somehow embodied the scary world of the unfamiliar. I reminded myself that this very American food was here before their ancestors had even disembarked from the far east of the Pale of Settlement. Soon, their home began to smell as endearingly familiar to me as it was uncomfortably exotic to her. In a very tense afternoon, I learned what made me and what it would mean to stand up for my black Jewish self. Under threat of snow, I worked with a fever to get Moroccan carrot salad, za'atar chicken wings, barbecue seasoned roasted potatoes, and collard green crap lock right before sunset. The greens simmered away without the benefit of the smoked turkey, but the pan bubbled with yellow, red, and orange peppers, red onions and garlic, and smoked paprika and kosher chicken bouillon. With time not on my side, I worked each triangular crap lock and sealed them off with egg wash and set them to bake like spana copita as the clock ticked down, and I set myself to washing the dishes so I wouldn't catch more hell. 
An hour before Shabbat came in, the food was carted away. I showered and dressed, got dropped off to give a special talk at Friday night services. The assembled crowd for the Honeg didn't leave a wing or a bit of potato behind. And that night, the one thing that everyone asked me the recipe for was the collard green kreplach. Before I said a single word about how much of this or what was thrown into the pot, I told the onlookers and eavesdroppers all about the green savior of my enslaved ancestors' quarters that nourished our people on their journey toward freedom while maintaining a key healthy component of our African dietary roots. Before the candles burned out, a merciful God gave me my moment to be an alien no more. Michael, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. And giving us a special preview of Kosher Soul. It seemed like a lot was riding on your cooking that night. How do you stay calm under pressure? You remember that you come from a culture of the cool. To us, cool isn't hip or popular. Cool is a stance, is an ancient stance. The late, great scholar of African art, Robert Frayes Thompson, said that overwhelmingly, the languages of West Central Africa, they all have a word for cool, spiritual coolness. The idea that you have to have demonstrate patience, grace, calm in the face of pressure, that you have to appear to be effortless, that nothing phases you, even when it does. And so that sort of cool pose, cool stance is something that I draw on to get me through the times when I know that I'm being tested, but in a way that if we actually broke it down, what I was being tested about, the person testing me might be embarrassed. Because then it's like, well, what are you, what's really bothering you? Friendships are often based like on a mutual identity. In the case of your story, a fellow Jewish person seemed to be challenged by the way you presented yourself. Do you feel that you face this kind of behavior from people frequently? It, it comes up. I mean, um, the person I'm referring to in this story was somebody I had a lot of love for and who I used to teach with for many years. And I was coming up in terms of my writing, speaking. And one thing that I found very difficult was that I felt a lot of people were all of a sudden going from being like friends and acquaintances to being very judgmental about the things that I put out into the world. In other words, it was like, now that we know that you're not just <laughs> this opinionated smart person we happen to know and befriend. We're concerned about the messages you put out into the world or how you say certain things. And not on the like a personal sort of like caring level, but more of a gatekeeper kind of way. That really disturbed me because I would never think to do that to anybody else. And then on top of that is this incident, which is more about what happens when I bring my material culture into a space where you don't consider that same material culture to be Jewish. When, as for me, Jewish is whatever is in the service of our religious civilization, Judaism, or our Jewish peoplehood. It's not something that can be put into a bubble. But I guess the bigger point of, of Kosher Soul is that Jewish can be collard greens and okra <laughs> and barbecue as much as it can be brisket or mamul or bialis or whatever you have. It's part of the same family, same diaspora. Yeah, well, you're a person who's very fluent in these two extremely rich food traditions, soul food, Jewish food. And the common conception is that these foods are very different. Yeah, they're really not. They're the food of marginalized and oppressed people. They're the food of people who have lived in exile. They're the food of people who have a relationship between homeland and diaspora. 
And quite frankly, these are the foods of people whose paths have crossed and intersected multiple times throughout thousands of years of history. So, you know, when I say okra, someone's obviously going to say, well, bamya. Yeah, but bamya comes from Africa. Lubia, rubia comes from Africa. And these things travel with African people through Southwest Asia, through the Fertile Crescent, as people moved from one place to the next. It's also war. It's also enslavement. It's also empires. These things put us into contact with each other. It means that our plates have similar foods. Not to mention the fact that in our mutual traditions, you have this thing about survival, where people have misjudged our frugalness. They've misjudged our ability to synthesize the foods of others into our own tradition to the point where you don't know where the other and ourselves begin or end. And that's a very common reality. And if I may go there for a second, it's also that, that sometimes when people point negative fingers at our food and say, oh, that's unhealthy or that's this or that, they're really expressing a certain type of misogyny towards black womanhood and Jewish womanhood. Instead of being grateful for the mothers that sustained us over the generations, I mean, it's like they totally forget that, nah, don't point your finger at Mamala. Point your finger at, at the Cossack trying to, like, touch you down. It's the Klansmen. It's not the folks from the plantation or the sharecroppers cabin that killed you. If you didn't move with the times, that's on you. But I also feel that as well. There's a lot of classism, a lot of misogyny, a lot of shame in regards to the majority culture that affects how blacks and Jews view their food traditions. And sometimes we embrace it and we love it and we just hug it to death. And other times we run from it and sneer at it because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do in order to be truly assimilated. There is such a narrow view of what these two different cuisines are, like what Jewish food is, what soul food is. It seems that there's just a few things that people associate with these cuisines. Why do you think that is? Because people associate us with our celebration food or our food of plenty. So for example, if I say it's Moroccan Jewish food, that's hundreds of dishes, okay? It's my the synagogue that I come from. Magin David, lots of Moroccan Jews, but also Tunisians, but also Syrians, but also Persians. Each community, and then some, had its own way of doing, its own way of eating, its own flavors. But if you ask most people, they're going to say, okay, couscous, okay, this, okay, you know. They have some Persian food, koreshe sabzi, fasinjan. That's it. They don't know the other hundreds of dishes. If you ask people about black food, it's going to come down to, oh, yeah, fried chicken, cornbread, this, that, da, da. And that's it. Celebration food, food of plenty. Not the foods that sustain you from day to day. Not the foods that are rare or endangered. People in America know deli food. They might know brisket. They might know matzo ball soup. They might know gefilte fish because it terrifies them. The different types of shapes of halot we have. Or the fact that if you go to a Persian house, it's gundi. It's not going to be matzo ball soup. All these different elements that are in the diversity of Jewish diaspora life and African diaspora life are kind of hidden. People know jerk chicken, but they don't really know that there are other foods in Jamaican cuisine, right? So it's up to us to sort of like break them out of that. In America, we also have a combo mode, right? Thing Every cuisine has to be in, in a combo. <laughs> you have to go to a restaurant or a cafe. There's six things offered, and they all have the same bread or rice, couscous, whatever with them. And this is a combo. I want the, the number five, the number six. If you can't express a cuisine in terms of being a combo, nobody wants to eat it. You know, at Jewish Food Society, we're building this archive of family recipes from around the world. And oftentimes when we're studying a family and 
we study their migration pattern, where they moved from place to place, how that affected their recipes. We're talking about Fanny Gerson's family or Patty Junich's family who are Mexican Jews and, and they make gefilte fish a la Veracruz, which has roots in Eastern Europe, but then is also influenced by Mexico and the flavors there. As a Jewish person and a food historian, what do you think about creating a balance between something, a tradition and personalization? Hmm. You have to realize that every single turn of time, people, generation, Lador Vador sounds very lovely, doesn't it? it? It sounds like everything gets passed down exactly as it was. There's only one problem. Moshe Rabbeinu never wore a kippah, right? We're no longer Aramaic speakers. We, we've made all these changes, but we've also have this, the tradition is the construct. It's not the canon. That's important. When you're mobile by force, by exile, and when you're also trying to return home in various ways, physically, spiritually, mentally, you'll never be the same again. But you have this inside of you, this, this wanderlust, this nostalgia for this center, this place that you've never actually been and can never go to. But it's the getting close to that energy that makes us who we are. So I've learned that on the one hand, you have to feel the tradition. You will know when something in your kitchen or on your plate, in your bowl, in the circle of people you're eating with and drinking with is the same as it always has been, but you also recognize that everything in front of you is as if it was never born before. Two things have to live in the same thing. You know, we have the, we, we have the, old, the old joke about the grandma and the brisket, right? The granddaughter calls the mom up. She says, hey, how do I make grandma's brisket? She says, well, you got to cut it and do this. Why do I have to cut it? She says, I don't know. Call your grandmother. Calls the grandmother up. She says, why do you cut it? Because the pan didn't fit. You know, didn't fit the pan, right? It's like, keep it simple. <laughs> but she, but her, all, all her life, she's taught that it was some technique, some tradition that mattered. It was just a matter of consequence of the moment. Like she only had a pan this big, only used that one pan for the brisket. So therefore, the brisket was going to get cut to fit the pan. Essentially, the inside joke is you have to cut the tradition to fit the pan that you're given. You have to make it work. And that everything that you do will not be what your children or descendants will do. And everything they do will not be what their descendants do. And you have to have your peace with that. We always desperately want the recipes to be exactly the same. It will never, ever, ever be again what it originally was. It's not going to be the same in the same moment. So we have these things in layers in our tradition. And it's there for a reason. It's there because the tradition, the corporate mindset knows that we have to be able to relate to things to make them personal and also to feel like as though we can pass them down. They have to be relatable, personal, with us, in us. Do you think that there is something special about Jewish food that welcomes this variation or these adaptations? Absolutely. I mean, Jewish food understands how to survive. It understands how to morph, how to change. It also understands how to take a joke. I mean, the thing about it is, between the food of African diaspora and African Atlantic and Jewish diaspora, there is this inherent satire without which we cannot live. It's already there. It's part of the grace. That's why every rabbi is a comedian and every black comedian is a preacher. I mean, it's all one in the same braid. When I say black, I'm not talking about a phenotype. I'm not talking about anything more than a culture, an ethnic group. What makes it black? What makes it Jewish? Those are the questions that I have to answer every day. If it's not for me, it's for other people. 
to have them understand that my validity has nothing to do with how I answer that question. My validity is how I live the truth of what is Black and Jewish to me. Do you think the Jewish community is growing more accepting of all forms of Jewish identity? It has to. I mean, you're running out of people. Eventually, you have to do more than pay lip service to that Asian kid adopted in the third row or the half-Irish mom who comes to all the Hebrew school events or a full Irish mom. I mean, I, I mean, I saw that. I grew up with that. I mean, I lived that in my teaching. I saw these people who, you know, one boy, I remember, I'd never forget him. He and his brother were very, very calm, very quiet. But one day the younger brother came, came to the Hebrew school and he was really upset. And he said he got called a terrorist. And I was like, what's going on? And I told him, I said, give me the phone. So I called this principal up and I said, excuse me, <laughs> this is so-and-so's Hebrew school teacher. He is half Afro-Indian from Trinidad and he's other half of him is Ashkenazi Jewish. And because he's brown, you let another kid call him a terrorist, and you didn't say anything about it. The next time you ha that happens, I'm going to come down there with our local representative, and you can explain to all of us why you think it's okay to dismiss that. I said, this boy has now had an incident that's going to give him trauma for quite some time because in his he's not safe in his own quiet, reasonably affluent suburb to just be who he is. And as a black Jewish man, I understand what that's like. I got an immediate apology. Don't apologize to me. Apologize to the son. Apologize to his mother and father. Because he, he, he is who he is. He looks like what he looks like. But, you know, when you say terrorist, I said that has multiple arrows thrown at him. Not just being brown, but as a Jew, all of it. Well, what questions do you think, you know, people should ask themselves to challenge their views or perception? Okay, so one is, how would you define your own journey? So I always tell people, when I go into a space and I say, Shabbat Shalom, Good Shabbos, you know, any number of Jewish greetings, someone says, thanks, or same to you. And I notice they'll say, you know, a very hearty, Good Shabbos, Shabbat Shalom, Shalom Aleichem to somebody else. I, I, know, I know what you're doing. I know, that, I know that I'm being othered. Or when I'm in an African-American space, and took like a college campus. Someone might go, oh, yeah, you, you do the Jewish stuff. Baby, I was a black first. <laughs> Either way. And it just, I know you're othering me. So I'm asking people to sort of just think about what it would be like to be othered. What would you feel like if you were in that person's shoes? For me personally, if anyone asked me, so when did you convert? The first thing I said to them is, oh, before we talk about that, when did your parents enjoy coitus that, that made you I mean, the moment of fertilization, I want to hear every detail. Spare me no detail. And sometimes they just shut up and walk away. Sometimes they, you get it now, don't you? You get it. You have no business asking me such a question. And if you're curious about my whole journey and everything, we can do that. But you got to know my name first. I have to know your name. I have no problem telling you my truth and hearing yours and learning from you. But I'm also not going to be othered. And at some point, you just have to stand up for yourself as... And it's not just Jews of color. It's Jews who are disabled. It's Jews who are queer. It's Jews who come from diversity of religious or spiritual backgrounds. It's a lot of us. It's Jews who are trans. It's, it's, it's so many of us of different pathways that I think the Jewish community has to make the brisket fit the pan now. Because otherwise, this, this is where our strength comes from. This is where our neshama comes from. It's going to come from a diversity of people. It's not, and I know everybody thinks, oh, wake up tomorrow, everybody will be um, 
machmir about everything, and that's what Jewish is. No, we've always been an area of Rav. We've always been a mixed multitude. And the sooner we get over ourselves and realize that, the sooner everything will be better for us as a Jewish people. I want to bring us to the New York Times article sure. about Pesach that you recently were a part of. It was titled, Blackness Deserves a Seat at the Seder. What do you find unique in the meaning of Black and Jewish culture around the specific holiday of Passover? Well, one thing I can talk about is that my great-great-grandfather, whose name happened to be Elijah, was emancipated from slavery in 1865. It was the time of the surrender, and he actually was enslaved in Virginia in the county in the place where the surrender took place between Grant and Lee. And it was a day before Erev Pesach. So the very next afternoon was the beginning of Passover, 1865. I take that very personally. When I read a book recently about the Haggadah and its contemporary import, and the author quotes an African-American theologian who says, that the African, enslaved African-Americans appropriated the story of the Hebrews. He says, oh, no, no, no. This was not an appropriation. The story of uh, Leitziat Mitzrayim was a gift to the rest of the world to express its yearning to be free. The story was supposed to become part of anyone who faced that form of oppression. And so for me, that's the center, the core of it. I mean, I, you have the African-American Seder plate with, you know, the different symbols, the sweet potato for the kapas, the collard greens for the maror. And, you know, I know I said in the chapter this last two days, but I've begun to display it for the entirety of Pesach because I want people to understand that that okra, that chicken bone, all those other symbols, they mean something to me. They're, they're bigger and more powerful. And I want people to expand the plate so that it fits whatever identities they want to express. And of course, I have two plates, because I'm not saying that this plate takes the place of the traditional Seder plate. I'm saying they can exist side by side. And of course, there's always an orange on my both plates and experiment with other symbols, but inclusion, inclusion, saying that the voices, the leadership are critical. They aren't superfluous. They're ancillary. They are as welcome as anything else and as important as anything else. I was reading a Washington Post article that you were quoted in from a few years ago. And something that really struck me there that you said was, in my family, children weren't allowed to question what adults did or said. And in the Jewish tradition, argumentation is holy, and children are encouraged to question. Obviously, that really got me thinking about when I was reading the New York Times Passover article and thinking about questioning. And I would love for you to just tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that and if that's also influenced your work in terms of questioning what these traditions are and if they have to fit in a certain box. Well, I mean, we didn't. There was no such thing as, why do we have to do that? What's that about? Da, da, da. It really was sort of like, never you mind. And you didn't learn anything from that. You didn't get any sort of real feedback that would sustain you and inform the next part of your, your journey. But I think that American Jews in particular take for granted the fact that many, but not all, I'm going to be very clear in what I say here, do grow up in environments that are a little bit more intellectually permissive and that pushback and a little bit of being a stiff-necked people is like part of the deal, but also trying to figure out how can we both benefit from the situation. One of my um, former Hebrew school principals, she liked to tell the story that she lived with a landlord who they were Arab-American. And she went to dinner with them, lovely dinner, and they kept, they started asking questions about culture and everything. And she said, they said, well, who's the most important person in the Jewish household? She said, the children. 
you know, like it or not, one way or the other, they drive some of the energy and direction of how the family even practices or doesn't practice or what, you know, ask, what questions they ask, what's important to learn about. All of that is very refreshing and very renewing, but also as a queer person, someone who's been out since I was 16 years old, now 45. That thing about asking questions and pushing back and saying, well, can this mean something else? Can this be broader? Do we have to do things that old way, or can we do things in a way that is infinitely more interesting and sometimes fun, slightly irreverent? So now I have all these three identities, and I mean, even though they're not, you know, black Southern way, mind your business, do what I told you to do. It's in the same exact culture that produced the blues, jazz, later hip-hop, later house, and the dance cultures and the oratory and the political leadership and intellect that goes along with resistance. So <laughs> one of my biggest questions growing up was, how is it that I live in a culture that is geared towards resistance, and yet you can't ask certain questions, you can't, you can't push back, you can't haggle with adults. And yet Judaism, in many ways, not always, has some elements of that. And queer culture certainly has an element of resistance and rebellion, but also an appeal to tradition, right? Because it's not just that we just, you know, <laughs> they say about us that we groom people, blow up the world. No, you know, queer people are also the historians. We're also the folks who work with artifacts and antiques. We're the folks who catalog the history of aesthetics. Our queer performers, drag kings and drag queens, often appeal to our sense of pop culture and cultural history. It's deeper than just being on the other side of tradition. We are the tradition. You know, so many Black interpreters that I know are also Black queer people. And I asked someone one time, I said, well, how come it's us? And he said, you already know, because we are the griots. We're all, we've always been the storytellers. And that was true. When I went to Africa, I learned that, you know, there were multiple societies where the the queer shamanic figure was the griot, was the person. And a griot, a storyteller and someone who is a historian and someone who is a the keeper of memories, didn't always have the social hierarchical status that made them on the same level as a farmer or a, a king or someone. They were definitely on the outskirts. They were marginalized. But the society couldn't function without them. And I think that's what it's all about. Here at Chmaltu, we couldn't agree more. Like, that's why we want to tell these stories and you know, show the biggest representation of Jewish identity that we can. And again, something that we try to do in all of our work is touching on what you said, which is about honoring the past, but creating new traditions. Yes. One of the beautiful things about my journey was that because I was teaching in virtually every form of Jewish practice in the D.C. area, I was exposed to the best parts of reform, renewal, reconstructionism, conservatism, Orthodoxy, Sephardic, Ashkenazi, all the above. When people are born into their bubble, they don't ever get to experience that. So they have a very limited appreciation for the diversity that we are. Yitz Greenberg famously say, I don't care what movement you belong to as long as you're ashamed of it. And it took me a long time to understand what he meant by that. But also if you flip it around, I don't care what movement you belong to as long as you're proud of it. You know, there's that too. One last question. Mm-hmm. Where do you see Jewish food in America in 10 years, or what's your hope for it? So I'm hoping that the appeal to tradition will keep going. You see this a lot with people who are trying to go into what does it really mean to be Iraqi and Jewish? 
also having people rediscover Kavas, which is not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do beat and hearing all that stuff. But I think it's important. So I think that's one element. The other element is that because we do have a diverse community, will the practices that I talk about and others be seen as Jewish and not just sort of like sort of Jewishy, but actually part of Jewish civilization? Another element is how do the trends in, call it koshering treif, how will they change Jewish food? So now we have kosher plant-based cracklings. I can't wait for them to uh, kosher impossible pork. They haven't yet, which I think is kind of crazy because they've done that with other things. And if it's, if it's vegan and it's plant-based, why not? Maybe it's a married iron, you know, an offense to the eye, I guess. But how, how does that change what Jewish food looks like? Or people within the Jewish food were going to go, same thing that vegans say. There's always had to be about emphasizing the thing you can't have. Why can't it be about appreciating the things you can't have? And so there's that dialectic that has to be worked out as well. Very well said. One favor for you that I have to ask you. Yes. Let's meet back here in 10 years, and we'll talk about if kosher impossible pork has been made. We'll talk about <laughs> we'll, we'll reflect. Will you promise me that you'll meet me back here in 10 years? Em yetze hashev. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. I'll meet you back here. It's a deal. Okay. You know. Sounds good. Next time I bring the hot tea. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us and sharing so honestly. We really are honored to have you on. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me to have my voice included, and I appreciate you. Thank you. That was Michael W. Twitty. Thank you for listening. I'll meet you back here next week. Until then, head to jewishfoodsociety.org for family recipes and stories from around the world. Shmalti is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get this show, so you don't miss any of the stories. Shmalti is produced and edited by Gal Shaya and Particle 3. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. <laughs>